0: Tonight I I wanted to tell you a couple of little stories. Uh, I I saw Blanche Hartman, who was for many years the um, abbess of the San Francisco Zen Center. Um, She's retired now, supposedly, but she's just as busy as she ever was. She's just had her 80th birthday. Her husband just had his 90th birthday. And um, they are just real busy, very interesting people. And um, they started telling stories. And there were a couple of their stories that I've kept by me because they um, had so much meaning for me. Uh, One of them was uh, Blanche's story. When she was growing up, she grew up as... um, A little girl in Alabama with a father who was a professor, a a radical, and a Jew. And um, so sort of defined their life in Alabama uh, rather a lot. He taught at the university. And because of his politics, uh, he was one of the First to try to introduce um, voting for everyone, for instance. Um, He got in trouble with the college and lost his, his professorship. And then he went into business with somebody, and the somebody cheated him and ran off with the money. And then he got involved with something else. And that's when Blanche was 12 years old sat down with herself and tried to figure out her father she said he didn't he wasn't making any sense that he kept getting betrayed over and over that whatever he did somebody would pull the rug out from under him and why did he trust people so much so she used discernment and some quiet to really consider. And she finally came to the conclusion that if you don't trust people, you feel really bad all the time, and that that was worth it, even if you got betrayed over and over, to just keep on trusting people. And she's been that way ever since. Lou's story was uh, from a younger time. When he was a little boy, he grew up in Flatbush, Brooklyn, um, Flatbush Avenue, just down the street from Joseph Cornell, if you know Joseph Cornell's strange boxes, he was an amazing artist, put little birds and strange things in little boxes. His father had a big pear tree in his front yard and down the street there was a concertina man who had his hat out and he played the concertina off and on all day long. And Lou was completely in love with the concertina man and hung out with him a lot. And one day the concertina man noticed that there were pears all over the ground around under that tree and he said, little boy do you think it would be okay if I picked up some of those pears? I could really use them. And Lou said, well, sure. So the concertina man came with a, an, a wheelbarrow and started piling them uh, it up with pears. And Lou's father came out and it said, what do you think you're doing? And chased him out of the way. He said, don't ever come back here. These are my pears. And Lou was eight years old. And he decided right then and there that whatever there was to give, he would always give it without any question, no matter what. And he's always been like that for 90 years. So what it makes me feel about it is how... um, Deeply our intuitions um, operate, and how freshly, and how even at a young age, uh, we're informed by them. In Buddhism, we have sort of three aspects of practice that are talked about. It's really one thing that that it's hard to say with one word. Um, one of one of them is um, meditation, of course. Uh, another one is wisdom, which, of course, uh, is the direct result or the, the exercise of meditation is the exercise of wisdom. And the third one is the precepts, the the how-to-be part, which is directly connected to the wisdom and the meditation. In most of our Western traditions, the the so-called moral um, directives come from on high they come from outside and are kind of imposed on us or given to us and then we take them but our basic Buddhist understanding is that the precepts uh, are our wisdom itself when we become soft enough and tender enough to really breathe freely in the world and feel safe enough our deep intuition is always to not to kill not to steal not to lie not to um, abuse alcohol and drugs and not to um Abuse sexuality. Of course, in Theravada, you only have five precepts. In Zen, we have ten. So <laughs> which are about mostly about right speech. Um, but it makes me see, when I hear stories like those, how... the precepts are us already from the beginning. And then as we grow up, we we grow up into confusion often and into various um, woundednesses that keep us protecting ourselves. Um, And so we become a little stiff and not so easily... um, able to relate to others in the way that the precepts would have us naturally do. Of course, we don't steal because, um, for one thing, we don't, you don't own anything anyway. Whatever we have, it's not ours. Um, And whoever, whoever's, things it is um, that whoever is us too that's the real truth of it there isn't any you and me it's just us all of us in it together even Buddha um had a childhood experience um, and a deep intuition that brought him to sit under the bodhi tree when he was doing um, yogi practices, really struggling, trying to transcend the body and to transcend the suffering of the on the earth. The yogi idea is um, that you Impose as much on, the hu- on your body as you possibly can. You starve yourself down to two or three grains of rice a day. And you don't ever sleep. And you stare at the sun. And, you know, many, many difficult, painful practices. Until finally he, he thought, mm, this, this doesn't work. It, do- it isn't making sense. He was almost dying by that time. And the story is that he remembered sitting as a boy when he was still living with his father in a beautiful palace. And he was sitting in the garden under a rose apple tree. And a great feeling of felicity, of tranquility and peace came over him. And he thought as a dying yogi, Ah, that's what it is it's that feeling and that's when he washed himself off in the river and um, had something substantial to eat for the first time and began to face his demons so it is for all of us And I do believe we all have, each one of us, some kind of story like that of um, something that happened that we've carried with us ever since. I always think that when we come to sit, when we come to do meditation, we've already had an enlightenment experience of some kind. And maybe more than one. Or at least deep insights into how things really are. And how to be. It can encourage us when things get rough. When they get bewildering and um, hard. Just to remember. It's in us and of us, and by us, and for us. We just had a retreat in New Mexico, and um, when I told those stories of Blanche and Lou, somebody asked me what my story was, and I had to really think, (laughs) oh, I don't have one. But of course I, I did. And it was that uh, Christy Hoffman was my best friend. And Christy and I used to spend most of our time together at her house because my house was filled with new babies. So at the age of five and six, uh, I would walk between my house and and her house, which was about three houses Mm -hmm. up the street, a long way for a five-year-old. Seemed like a very long way and we would have conversations as we walked side by side and during one of those I felt her so strongly beside me her presence was so strong and then I felt my own presence so strongly my onlyness and then I looked at her and I thought oh I'll never be her but she's me it's a very dizzying kind of uh, um, wonderful feeling. She's me, but I'll never be her. It's what we say in Zen: not one, not two. We really, you really can't say when you feel your way all around it. It's very mysterious. I had it again when I was quite grown um, and had a house full of babies myself and was taking everybody out to the grocery store and across the parking lot I saw an old lady who lived in our neighborhood who had begun to really decline that year. And I looked and she was just barely hobbling along. And I was so struck and I thought, oh, there but for the grace of God go I. And then I thought, there go I. You know, I was hobbling as she was hobbling. We just do. Our life is everyone's life. It's what Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing. Sometimes they call it emptiness, which just confuses it terribly. But it's how everything is connected. And it's what Buddha discovered under the tree, the connection. So that when he saw the star, he said, all beings are enlightened with me. that's my talk. Um, You might have questions or comments.
1: This idea of we are all one and we are all connected, I've heard it from different people at different times. Mm. Every time I've heard it, including tonight, it has been a very abstract concept for me. Especially given the world being what it is and people whom I've known or not known, people being what they are, I have extreme difficulty understanding that concept of we are all one. In all honesty. And when I hear people claim it, we are all one. I'm like, do they really mean it? Or are they just saying it to sound really high and mighty and enlightened? Please forgive me for saying this. I understand. (laughs) Sure. So if you could please elaborate on that. And I doubt very much that anytime soon I'm going to come to understanding it. Again, especially given the world being what it is. But assuming I do understand it, or I, or I guess if I do understand it, maybe I won't ask this question. But my next question is, what is the point of believing that concept? That ah,
0: It's not a belief. There are no beliefs in Buddhism. It's an experience. And so, um, yeah, you're right. If it's presented as a belief, then it's very misleading. Because ideas are cheap. They're a dime a dozen. Um, And they don't really have any meaning unless there's an experience in them that they come from. On the other hand... um, I think we've all had one kind of experience or another where we put ourselves first for some reason. Whether it's to scoop a child away from the front of a car that's going to run them over, or um, letting a fly outside instead of killing it, or you know, there, there are many levels of how to be in the world that recognize that there are others in the world with us. And the more we study ourselves, the more we really attend to where we are and who we are, the more we have to uh, see what's here. We begin with ideas about who we are, and then as we begin to sit and to begin to experience not only our own ideas about ourselves, but the rest of it, including the dark side, we begin to um, maybe be more raw and open, so that we include uh, what's raw and open in our in our world. There are meta practices where we begin giving lo- loving kindness to ourself. Do you know that one? And then moving out into the, out to the edge of the universe and then back, back again. And that's, that is an experience of, of mm, the not one, not two, you could say. I mean, you can't really say we're all one because it's, it's not entirely true. And you can't say we're all separate because that's not entirely true either. There's some place of us that meets. And, and our life is about Meeting. And it's about how we meet. Martin Buber talks about it a great deal in I and Thou, saying that if we meet each other as as things, as its, that we have a particular kind of mind as we meet. The mind, an it kind of mind, a, a, a commodified mind, you could say. Um, a kind of hard-nosed mind. And if we meet as I and thou then to say thou to someone is to say thou to oneself which is about respect and a kind of devotion so it's, it's about those kinds of experiences that come out of deep study of oneself and one's own life and that's really what this practice is and that's what meditation is when we meditate we have to see what's there i mean all this all everything that's there not just what we want to see and the more we see the more we're able to accept and include the imperfections in others including the horrendous messes that we're in and they're awful That makes sense. Too abstract. I'm being honest, sorry. I understand. <laughs> so what a Zen master would say is, keep sitting. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe because the very first. Well, I think it's the first time that I can remember anyway. Other than I've heard this concept or read about it. After. I But the one instance I remember the most was from an individual who in being who this person was and the way they, our interaction was interacting with
0: me.
1: <coughs> this person acted and treated me in any way odd to me or not and
0: yet at the same time was insistent. <laughs> I understand. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and again, that, so I, that experience
1: has so the
0: of it. Yeah. There was an old cartoon in the New Yorker years ago where one of those bosomy um, society ladies was saying, I'm one with the universe. And her grumpy husband is right beside her, saying, "Well, you damn well better be." <laughs> so, of course, of course, it's really saying too much in a way.
1: And also I, most, uh, I find mm mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: Well, as I say, it's all about experience. It's not. Re- it's. We have to talk, but it's a shame. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, you used the word demons in the dark side, and I wish you would elaborate on that and why we have to use those terms um if what you're saying that we're all one or we're all us am i a serial killer am i a peaceful man um if you could talk to that as far as the Buddha's demons when buddha sat down under the tree um He was assailed by Mara. Um, Mara actually followed him his whole life. Mara brought everything to bear on him. He brought endless temptations of every kind. He offered him um, the rule of the world he offered him anything that he wanted and his daughters came and danced nakedly in front of him Um, he offered banquets with fabulous food it's a metaphor for what one goes through as one sits and begins to experience what it is all the, the the greed and the anger and the complete stupidity of our life and our mind um, begins to come up when we sit. It just does. Not just the stories, not just the movies that we play over and over again, but but the real crusty bits that, that we are. It's all there. We are, uh, we aggrandize ourselves. We over humble ourselves we want too much we are sometimes overcome with greed or with anger and when we sit those things become very clear to us and we have to face them usually we distract ourselves usually we uh, we go to the movies or we can call somebody on the telephone or read a book or do something else take a walk so it's very easy not to really notice as things come up but in sitting the whole point is to notice and so we just do see and it's not a pretty sight sometimes and it's okay Because it's human, and we're all human together. So then the question is, what do we do? Do we allow Mara to take us over? Or not? And Buddha fought back in his mind until finally uh, Mara was bested. It says in the stories that he met Mara. He met all of that instead of turning away. And as soon as you meet it, it's not the same. It doesn't have the same power. And and then Mara comes back in many stories and, and, and to many different practicers and and they will be given a temptation by Mara and then they'll say oh, but that's Mara saying that and Mara says oh, she sees me, she sees me alas, alas and he runs away so it runs through our life Mara appeared to Buddha off and on all during his life up to the very end We never get perfect. We can get more clear, more insightful, more kind. Does that make sense? It sounds like God and the devil. Well, it is kind of like that. Except the God part. (laughs) So it's just the devil out there. (laughs) That is us. Hmm? The devil is us as well. Sure. That travels through us. Sure. Hmm. But it's not a thing. And once you see it, Mara says, alas, alack, he sees me, he sees me.